0: American Giant makes the durable, comfortable spring closet staples you need for work, the gym, and even happy hour. Made in America. Designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20.
1: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me is Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode where Huey helps Louis say no to drugs, Dewey come to terms with his rapidly changing body, Walker learns a hard lesson about bullying, and Mark is torn to pieces by a commercial-grade thresher. Lessons will be learned. So we're gonna talk about board games this week. We're gonna talk about the Eurus, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment, we're gonna talk about the games we played last week, news, and why it doesn't matter, and finally, our topic of the week is going to be end conditions, the conditions under which a game will end. That will also be the last thing we talk about in the
0: podcast. Haha. Ooh, spoilers. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Eclipse Second Edition. It is a 4X space game where you have an interesting blueprint of your three different types of ships, and you can change and manipulate them, and it instantly changes all of the ships on your board. That is the interesting hook, and there's technologies, and there's flipping over planets, and there's fighting the other player. Everything and anything goes on in Eclipse 2nd Edition.
2: (laughs) Yes, as well as random system draws helping to determine who gets to win. I'm actually surprised that since the year, well, it's been out for over a year now. I'm rather surprised that they haven't made any effort to include any of the expansion material from some of the first edition alien races and such. I have to assume it's partially due to distribution woes, partially due to general commercial issues. I don't know. It's a strange development.
0: I have a feeling that it was a huge game that had, that needed multiple players. It was released in the middle of a pandemic so it got very few plays, therefore few, not very much buzz, and therefore we'll have to wait on these expansions.
2: I don't know about that. I think there were lots of buzz. I mean, it's funny, grounded in terms of the pandemic, it was the last thing I picked up from the United States before the border closed. And indeed, the border guards looked at me like I was a very strange person for traveling internationally. (laughs) This is in March of 2020. I'm not sure it was a good idea. But anyway, I did get it. I don't think we've played it since we reviewed it. It, It's an awkward game, as you say. You know, the pandemic hit and it's, it's hard to get together that many people. And it's also worth noting, despite my continued enthusiasm for the excellent bits of Eclipse 2nd Edition, namely the ship design... It comes with a lot of baggage, and we've been playing a lot of 4X-adjacent space games that do not have that baggage. Two in particular that come to mind are Warpgate and Imperium the Contention. This is to say nothing of Quantum, which we also like to pull out from, from time to time. They're not really very similar games, but they're vaguely similar in focus and scope, and they don't have the same kind of sprawling issues that Eclipse tends to have. And so that might account for part of the reason why we haven't been driving to get it back to the table.
0: It is a lot, that is for sure. That is no doubt. And a lot is Eclipse 2nd Edition. And now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, I played Cascadia. And if you want a game that defines the term fine... (laughs) Oh, wow. Man, this is it. Well, no, seriously, though. Like, there is nothing wrong with it. It, it, But it does everything that you want. You know what I mean? It, It is very fine. You're much like Calico. You're drafting from available choices that are on the table. You're building your little map. You're trying to... Uh, satisfy the conditions of that particular game. There's A, B, and C cards for all the different animals, so you're trying to pair them up or make different patterns on your board. Uh, Calico is different because the fact that it you're very restricted on how to play those tiles. You really have to plan ahead, where this is wide open. You can just sort of, well, this one doesn't work, I'll just throw it over here. So Calico is much more punishing, and I definitely would would play it over top of Cascadia. But like I said, Cascadia is is fine. It's published by Fallout Games and designed by Randy Flynn.
2: You're absolutely right, I think, to compare them. I think I did the same thing when I talked about Cascadia a few months ago. And you're absolutely right to emphasize that Cascadia feels more friendly, feels more open. It doesn't induce the same kind of puzzly brain burn that Calico does. So it's very much a question of taste. They're, but they're both fundamentally tiling games operating off of a drafting element. And despite the fact that they are very saliently different, I am lukewarm on them for much the same reason. You know, I, I, I prefer my tiling games to be on a shared tile space. I prefer my tiling games to be a little bit more... Player interactive, I prefer the drafting to have a little bit more teeth, and I find that in both games it's mostly you just focusing on your own spatial puzzle, which is fine. I can completely understand why they're so popular, and Cascadia does have lovely animal paintings for the animal cards. The actual board state tends to be a little visually drab, to my taste anyway, but a lot of people seem to think it's very pretty, so
0: there you go. And it's definitely the in thing with Arc Nova and Cascadia and all these animal-type games. They've been very popular. That is absolutely true. And like you said, it's easy to teach because all you're doing is drafting a pair of tiles and a token. You can put the tile wherever you like as long as it touches a side and the animal just has to cover a like animal. So you have to, so you sort of want to make sure you can place the animal even though it doesn't satisfy condition. At least you maybe can work with it later. So just try not to draft an animal that you just have to throw back in the bag. It does have this pine cone mechanism where you can sort of manipulate your draft selections, but meh. and that is Cascadia I get to play Contra the Board
2: Game Contra the Board Game is the latest instantiation of the modular deck system invented by Adam and Brady Sadler, formerly of Blacklist Games, more on this later there's a lot of storytelling to go on here, but I mean, Contra, because it's part of the modular deck system, is basically a retheme, and rethemes are such a fertile topic. I mean, I could con- I could literally talk about Contra for up to an hour, but I'll try to limit my comments. You up for that, Walker?
0: Yes, one hundred percent.
2: If you're down, I'm down. Left to their own devices, many designers would be happy to just, you know, slap on a new coat of paint right onto an established system. Gamers are often left with an inferior product unit destined to go right into the bargain bin. The Sadler brothers, however, decided to be a better team than that when they got their start. And Contra does have some impressive elements. So the question is, does it feel like Contra? Does it feel like a run-and-gun game? Kind of, sort of. It feels more like a run-and-gun game than the other games of the modular deck system do. One of the innovations in Contra is your characters will die after being hit once, because that's how Contra works. You don't have a life bar like you would in other video game adaptations like in Street Masters or in Brook City or what have you. You get shot once, you die. So you block damage by discarding tokens or cards from hand. This really doubles down on the card man- the hand management elements, which is something that I'm always weak to. I love hand management in card games like this. And similarly, I've talked about this before in the context of Quest and Hour of Need, the upcoming superhero card game, although uh, I have doubt that doubts that it will actually ever reach our hands here in North America the action system has broadly been loosening up. I mean, Street Masters very much felt it's Sentinels of the Multiverse roots. You could activate one thing, you could play a card, and then you would draw a card, and then you and you had a specific movement phase. Subsequent iterations have become looser and looser, and now we've basically gotten to the point in Contra where card plays don't take up an action. Same thing with Master of the Card Plays and Hour of Need. And so you can have these lovely turns with a flurry of activity in your doing shooting right across the map and jumping everywhere and acquiring a gun and shooting a whole bunch of different characters and that part was cool does it feel like a run and gun shooter if you're not familiar with the other modular deck system games not a whole heck of a lot because you still have a static map this is a small box mds game which i personally am a fan of i like smaller boxes lower price point we're talking about retail msrp of 40 dollars And you still get four maps, you still get three different kinds of enemies and four characters there, but as a result, you don't get that same sense of progression that you might expect from a side-scrolling game. I talked about this in the context of Mythic Games and which seeks to emulate the sort of side-scrolling em up specifically Golden Axe, where you're progressing literally along a series of boards, removing boards as you scroll past them. This is a tricky thing to do, and as ever, whenever you're talking about an adaptation, it depends on what you're looking for in terms of getting that kind of thematic hook. And so some people might look at it and say, it doesn't scroll at all. Or I might look at it and say, but you die in one hit. How cool is that? It's just like Contra. So it really depends. It's kind of a mixed bag in terms of how successful it is as an adaptation of Contra in and of itself. As a modular deck system game, I'm a big fan of Contra the board game. That You've got all the things that we really love about the system, the character asymmetry, the modularity, the fact that different stages feel very different. And indeed, the jungle stage, which is the first stage they recommend trying, feels an awful lot like the first level of the first Contra video game. The bridges blow up as you run past them. The, f- the first boss that you can encounter is Wall. Wall is my favorite character in the Contra series. I mean, other people like Blue Bandana Dude or... Red bandana dude, but my favorite character is Wall. Uh, Greenbush has got a pretty big following. Greenbush is for OnlyFans only, Walker. OnlyFans only. only. At any rate, as I said, I could say a lot of things about Contra the Board Game. It is a cheaper, mass-market version of the modular deck system, and... Given that the modular deck system has an uncertain future, it's kind of a shame that this is the the moment when they're kind of making more of a mass market push. And the things that you like from the MDS are still there. And it does have enough elements for me, as someone who's played a lot of games in the system, to appreciate the fact that it feels more like a side-scrolling shooter. But it may not feel enough like a side-scrolling shooter for those not conversant with the MDS system. Now, if you like hand management... ...and dice rolling in the context of co-op games... ...and it does scale very well... ...solo play is great... ...sets up quickly... ...plays very quickly... ...and everyone gets to control one character... ...so it scales up very neatly in that sense... ...no forced divvying up of characters... ...or strange arbitrary rules... ...for low player counts or high player counts... ...I think you could do a lot worse than giving Contra a try. As per usual... ...not the deepest thing in the world... But its approach to economy is certainly worth a lot of praise. And just to follow up uh, on our discussion about miniatures, it has the same balance that Gloomhaven does. The heroes and the boss are miniatures, but all the enemies that spawn, this is one of the ways that it kept its small box game at 40 bucks are tokens. And that, I think, is a great middle ground between the excess of a chaos-exclusive monster versus just using tokens. Now, a lot of people asserted, pursuant to our conversation about miniatures, that once they played a game with miniatures and then their dog died, and so therefore anyone who likes miniatures is clearly deficient in the head. The Contra, nor any other game, is ever going to change their minds. But I, for one, like the balance that it strikes. So in the pantheon of modular deck system games, I think it is absolutely a worthy entrant. If you have any enthusiasm for the MDS system, or if you would want to give it a try, I think Contra is an excellent entry into the system. I am looking forward to trying more stages, more bosses, and more characters, and we'll probably have more to report at that time. This is Contra, the board game, designed by Adam Sadler and Brady Sadler, put out by Blacklist Games, technically as of this month, but more on that later. I got to play a game called
0: Planet Unknown. Which, sorry, which planet? Unknown. Okay. Ryan Lambert, and Adam Ryberg, put out by Adam's Apple Games. So, Mark, this has a Lazy Susan. It's amazing. has all of these Tetris pieces in it. They're in groups of two. And whoever's turn it is, they're the captain. And they can spin this Lazy Susan around to whatever group of two they want. Six different groups of two. And then everyone, wherever it lands, everyone has to draft from what's in front of them. One of those two tiles. And it's pretty well a roll and write. All right? You're... Filling your map, you're moving up cubes, combo, 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 very much, you know, roll and write game. There's, but what's good about it is that there's 12 different planets you can choose from. There's, everyone has, it's much like, like those games where one side is the generic side that everyone can use. And then on the other, there's all these fancy advanced plays. So like 12 different planets, eight different corporations, five tracks that you have you have to, you go up because every time you take a tile, it always has two different types of terrain and you're going to go up on those two tracks. So it, the flow is there. It's really, it's really good because you can play up to six players. I wouldn't mind trying it at six. I think it would work well. You spin it, you draft it, you put it on, everyone puts their tracks up to do whatever bonus things you get, move the first player marker, they spin it to where they want it, pick a tile and you just keep going like that until one of the depots, which is the sets of two, is completely empty or someone can't play a tile. Then the game ends. There's all sorts of different scoring conditions. Like at the beginning of the game, uh, there's a objective between each player. So just those two players are going for this objective with the player on your left. And then you're going with another objective to the player on your right. All of these things are fairly interesting because those tracks... All interact with the special corporation that you're playing. You're scooting this rover around your planet, picking up life pods and meteorites. You're scoring for complete rows or columns. Lots of things going on. Played it twice. Wouldn't mind playing it again. Nice little game. Planet Unknown.
2: Also from Blacklist Games, I got to play Mega Man Adventures. Now, I have a lot less to say about Mega Man Adventures for the following reason. Mega Man Adventures is an incredibly bland co-op dice rolling game. In fact, it reminded me an awful lot of Vengeance by Gordon Kalaya. The difference being, in Vengeance, the sort of puzzle, the combat puzzle of the encounter you're doing, is subject to a much greater degree of control and foreknowledge. You have the entire map that's visible to you. This is parenthetically true both of the board game and of the roll and fight version. You have the entire board visible to you, you have your ability to manipulate dice, and it is your job to, with those tools to clear out the map that's in front of you. Mega Man feels an awful lot like that, except you proceed in fixed stages and a lot of the information is opaque to you. And point of fact, when you get to the boss, you no longer know what you're going to need from one moment to the next. So it's just a random series of crap that's being thrown in your face. And it also, in terms of verisimilitude, it doesn't really match things because it, it, the game is balanced and designed to be played with three or four players... And honestly, the fact that my friend is running through their own little 8-bit pixelated stage and I'm running through my little 8-bit pixelated stage eh, doesn't really make me feel like we're all on the same page, no pun intended. The only point of contact is that we're going to be sharing some card plays between us, but it doesn't really make me feel like we're all doing the same thing. It does, however, have acrylic standees. I think acrylic standees are the wave of the future, Walker. We've been big fans of a lot of other games, at least in terms of the visual appeal of acrylic standees. Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor as an example, a variety of Kickstarters to fund acrylic standees for role-playing games. I really think that there's a future for this, and I'm hoping that more and more games continue to use that. It really lets you have more vivid and demonstrative artwork, while at the same time minimizing the cost and environmental impact and box size. So, uh, I don't really have much to say about Mega Man Adventures. It was very bland. I wouldn't. I don't want to play again. It didn't really grab me in any way. Just roll some dice. You don't really have much ability to manipulate the dice. You can't re-roll them very efficiently. You can't pivot. And it's a series of random influxes, and that's more or less what's there at the end of the day. There are lots of better inst- instances of games where you can do something with the dice that you're given. Uh, again, vengeance comes to mind, even though it's a very different style of game. I, I will, however, note that this is also published by Blacklist Games, I got both of them delivered by Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble wasn't supposed to start selling them, Walker. Blacklist Games has about six outstanding projects and pre-orders that are in various stages of fulfillment hell. They ran out of money to pay Quartermaster Logistics. In some cases, they pretended as though they hadn't. They said, oh, you know, yeah, this project ran out of money, but this other project that we're running, the administrative issues surrounding it are different from that. It's like, yes, they're different in that the pile of money that you owe them for this is different than the pile of money you owe them for that. So good job on that. Look, I'm not new to the Kickstarter game. I've been involved in Kickstarters and pre-orders for decades in this hobby. I have never, ever been subject to the same kind of mealy-mouthed misdirection that I have with recent Blacklist Games projects. I don't mind when things are late. I don't even really get all that angry when someone takes my money and then the project fails. I don't like it when they start playing fast and loose with, with guarantees. Similarly... As of a few years ago, they started selling pre-orders for Contra the board game and Mega Man Adventures, both of these games that I just talked about. And a number of people have given given them interest-free loans. As of years ago, I have a game and they don't. Now they say that this is uh, this is Barnes and Noble's fault. That may well be true. But I'm called to mind, uh, to to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, to lose one parent sounds like misfortune, to lose both sounds like carelessness. And at this point, Blacklist Games has had a history of dealing with partners, and then the actual end consumers getting rather left short-changed as a consequence. So either they have the worst luck and the worst judgment in the world, or it's just the case that miraculously, they're the common denominator amongst all these fulfillment issues. So if you pre-ordered Contra or Mega Man Adventures, you have my sincerest sympathy. But alas, you get to wait a little bit longer while I got them from Barnes & Noble. Thanks again to a listener who pointed out that they were available on the Barnes & Noble web store. So Mega Man Adventures I do not recommend. And it is a sad, sad fate for Blacklist Games. I will also point out that Adam and both Adam and Brady Sadler are no longer at Blacklist Games. Brady Sadler is now working at Lucky Duck Games, another publisher. We, we like a, a number of Lucky Duck offerings. And Adam Sadler has left the tabletop industry altogether. And so, suffice to say, the company has somewhat of an uncertain future, and I don't know where the rest of the MDS games, if there are going to be any MDS games,
0: will come to pass. That is my experience with Mega Man Adventures. Next up for me is Crusaders. Thy will be done. I've already talked about it a lot, so just very briefly... Played it mostly on Board Game Arena, but this week I finally got to play it in real life. This is designed by Seth Jaffe and put out by Tasty Minstrel Games. Much better in real life. 65% in fact better mark. <laughs> <Weird>. <laughs> Precisely? Precisely. Wow. I don't know you're just looking at the board state more. You're looking at the strength of all of the neutrals out there. You're seeing that the next player has exactly seventh strength. You're seeing that if you attack them, they'll go up to eight strength and not be able to do what they've been saving up for, and therefore have to do a suboptimal turn. Or you're seeing that the person in front of you is gearing up for that, and you're not going to be ready. So you have to make sure you're going to be ready, you know, on your following turn by you know doing certain things. Just seeing the whole board state at once as opposed to having to try to scroll around the table, uh, the screen, and see it. Just much, much better, even though it was not a deluxified version, Mark. Painful to play. Still got through it, though. <laughs> no less than the, the designer,
2: Seth Jaffe, complained, articulating that I I was blocking, I was, I was getting in the way of all of your stunning insights into how amazing Crusaders That Will Be Done is. Because every time you bring up that terrible, terrible word, I note my objections. Which is just to say, if he's expecting you to not be a troll, he's going to be sorely disappointed going forward.
0: So, so true. So I won't go into many of the mechanics. I've talked about Crusaders so many times in the previous weeks. I will just leave it there.
2: Got to play Albedo again. Albedo is a bizarre little deck building slash blind bidding game where it is a science fiction theme very, very much like core worlds, i.e. the galactic order is splintering and now you're just predating on the former held worlds. Essentially what happens is you have a hand of six cards, you arrange them in bids between two planets that are available, you have air power and ground power, again, very much like Core Worlds, but here is just a straight bid. Whoever has the most air power gets first crack at it, and you can buy various things on the planets with ground power. Some of the options are exclusive to others, some of them are not. So sometimes you care about going first, sometimes you don't. And for a game that's that quick... Albedo is surprisingly satisfying. I think it's one of my favorite blind bidding games. One of the classic tragedies of a blind bidding game is if you're the one who bid one lower than the one who won the auction, often you end up with nothing. But in the case of Albedo, the trick is, you are able, if With clever allocation of your cards to make sure that whether or not you come in first in the bid, you'll still be able to get something of value. And so clever use of your deck and clever pruning of your hand will ensure that you're never going to come home empty. So it's not those high stakes, big loss, big reward consequences that you often have in blind bidding games. I'm a huge fan of Albedo, I've played it a bunch of times over the past few years, it's got a big local booster in the form of Woogie he in fact has his name on a number of the cards and I will always play when given the opportunity, it's very quick, very appealing shame about the presentation, some of the iconography is not particularly clear a couple of icons are very very similar to each other and even after having played the game about half a dozen times I can't reliably remember which icon corresponds to which deck, so I have to look very carefully, it's like okay well if I go to this planet, I can buy a weird rocket tower thing wait what is that again does that mean a capital ship i can't remember look over at the decks so aside from that i've got no complaints about albedo happily play any of any time designed by kai herberts
0: published by herberts entertainment ug so the Reichbusters busters campaign moves ever onward this is game designed by jake thornton put out by mythic games and it's just getting better i'm so su- i'm very happy to say the the interaction of the enemies because we've seen aliens already, but now the alien handlers come out. So when they spawn, they bring more aliens with them. They have abilities that only affect the aliens that, you know, make them more interesting. And the fact that there's this interesting interaction between different types of creatures, they're not just all their own thing. Uh, there's more interaction with the sound deck because there's these rare circumstances that it will spawn, like has this very interesting system where there all of the enemies are labeled A through how many ever letters that there are enemies, and the J is usually the super powerful death one that you don't see until I, of the mission that we're in, and so it's one of these timing things where if you draw that bad sound check just when it has that J, then you're going to get the giant shredder that's going to come and probably rip your whole team apart. Luckily, we missed out on a few of these. Where it said that there was going to be this the giant shredder like I've already talked about and these crazy heavy gun teams. But luckily when we spawned the level 2, it just didn't happen to be that letter. So I love how that system works where you might luck out or you might be penalized or things might happen. Lots of things going on. Reichbusters. Glad I went back to it.
2: Would you say that this is one of those instances where the early scenarios, the first scenario especially, doesn't show the game to its strengths?
0: I think so, 100%. I think it's one of the, like, sort of a, they should label it more of a training mission, like a a how-to-play baby step mission, and then the real action is about to begin. It's such a shame. If you're going to sell
2: me a game that is, you know, probably triple digits in terms of MSRP, and certainly more if you're talking about the all-in Kickstarter you can have some degree of faith that I'll be able to run the thing, but I might not have enough time to go back to a game that sorely disappoints me after a first play.
0: Yeah, because there's so many things missing from that first scenario, like the the different uh, enemies, the two-phase uh, alarm system because you have a post alarm and a pre-alarm a pre and a post alarm. So you're sort of, trying to get as far in as you can before the alarm goes off and everything spawns and you're trying to make sure your corridors are clear. So almost like space Hulk wise, you know, you want to make sure you're in a corner. So the line of sights aren't there. There's all these different item tokens. There's a interesting card system and a dice system like that work together very well. There's special dice that you're like, in. sorry, I shouldn't say special dice because it's the same dice. There's a special symbol on the dice, I should say, that you can use for different things. And the main thing you want to use them for is to for the enemies to drop loot. Because if you do enough damage with just the dice naturally and you, you're you able to use those special stars to make them drop loot, then you can start getting disguises and armor and weapons and all these different things as well. Like everything about Reichbusters, can't wait to finish this off.
2: I hate to keep comparing everything to Gloomhaven, but more games, I think, should do what Jaws of the Lion did. Jaws of the Lion was very clear. Look, if, you, if you're confident you can handle the rule system, skip these first three scenarios. More games should be willing to do that, because quite frankly... Time is more valuable to me in many contexts than money. I don't care if I pay $250 for an all-in Kickstarter. If the first scenario stinks, I'm not going to play the second scenario. I'm going to sell it or get rid of it. So have a little faith in your consumer base. mythic games. Make sure that, look, if you want to have a training mission, fine. But at least flag it in the rulebook and say, if you think you're comfortable with the maximal rule set, skip to this scenario.
0: Or or they could have done it better. It could have been like a scenario further in. So it's like sort of like a, a prelude, like this is what's gonna happen, and then flash back and then start back at mission one type thing, but sort of you know do like a walkthrough of all the different things that could happen, you know all the cool mechanisms, and sort of leave a walkthrough mini mission and then start back because I understand they have a story they want to tell and they want to sort of build it up. They don't want to throw you into everything right at the beginning. They want to you know play it off as you know a standard World War Two you infiltrating the Nazi base and then more occult stuff slowly creeps in, but they could have done like sort of like a, like I said, like a flashback or something to show you what's to come to catch you. So you don't just walk away and say, this is boring. Sure. And that was Reichbusters by mythic games. Have a little
2: bit more faith in your audience publishers, or at the very least give them credit to be able to choose how they'd like to get into your game. So on the topic of faith, Walker, If you were to think of one designer who could do roll-and-write properly, who would it be? Writer Knizia, Mark. Good guess. I got to play Medici the Dice Game. And Medici the Dice Game is fundamentally a roll-and-write. And And when I was told this, my eyes immediately started to roll, but then I realized, wait a minute, have a little faith. Medici the Dice Game is actually really good. It's probably my favorite (laughs) roll-and-write The only similarity that it shares with Medici is, instead of pulling cards from a deck to establish lots that you will then load into a boat, you're rolling dice, and whoever rolls the dice can take up to three dice, and then other people draft from whatever's left. So sometimes you want to be taking lots of dice all at once, both because they're good and because if you take them, nobody else can. Sometimes, though, just because you're the one rolling the dice doesn't mean you should take as many as you can, and you want to slow roll it, especially since you can then exert some control later on in the round. One of the things that makes Medici so satisfying is in addition to these choices that you have over the course of the round, all the scoring is very straightforward and it is directly competitive with all of the other players. You're competing over area majorities and different types of goods. You're also competing for some total value of your ship at the end of every round. This is exactly for what it's worth, the same as in Medici the auction game. And despite the fact that Medici the auction game is probably one of my lesser preferred Canizia auction games, especially when compared to things like Modern Art or Raw, I think that Medici is solid, but not as outstanding as some of his other work. I do think that Medici the Dice Game uses some of those structural elements to great advantage. Very, very quick, incredibly simple to teach, small box game, leverages common concepts to anybody who already plays Medici, and nonetheless feels a little bit like a roll and write. You've got the little pad, and you get to cross things off, and get to roll a whole bunch of custom dice, so a lot to recommend it. I was very, very pleasantly surprised, and I would happily play Medici the Dice Game again.
0: Maybe rolling rice we should call rolling glaze. You know, your eyes roll back and glaze over every time someone <laughs> says they want to play one. So I got to play a new game, Mark. Kickstarter Fulfillment for Merchants of the Dark Road. This is done. This is designed by Brian Schur and put out by Elf Creek Games. So this is only a first play with only two players. So take that in mind. But the first thing you're doing, you have a, this steed. Everyone gets a steed that's completely different. A cool steed? A steed, Mark. How how noble. Pretty cool. So they all have their special ability, Then you're selecting a die, and it slides up on your board, and that's going to be your active die. And there's three to choose from, and as they slide up, they go through an ability. So you get that ability that you just slid through, and now you have an active die with a value on it. That's how far you can move your carriage. So I really think this is sort of a developer's nightmare, Mark. There are six different goods. There's so many resources. Six different goods. There's coins. There's blazing quartz. There's lanterns. There's horseshoes. There are six different types of dice that you're going to use throughout the game. Little too much stuff, but there is some interesting stuff there. There's this, you're trying to get gold. You're trying to get prestige. And at the end of the game, you're just taking your low, you have to take your lowest of those two to start your score with. It's got this, As you go around, it's got this very interesting sort of, not trade-off, but decision. Because to get the majority of your points, you're going to be visiting these towns. And these towns want goods, and there's adventurers that want to be dropped off at these towns. So you sort of have to decide on when to go. Like, Do you want to fill up your carriage with, with adventurers and goods and fulfill everything? Or do you want to just do a lot of deliveries with a few things and... You can upgrade the goods that are in your carriage, which gets you more like better victory points. So there's a little bit going on. I definitely want to go back to it and definitely with more than two players because those are only like the two spots that I've talked about. There's this whole rondelle of different areas you can go to buying goods, going to the Oracle, doing different things. I've only talked about the traveling and the adventurers, but all sorts of different things to do. That is Merchants of the Dark Road.
2: Initial impressions seem to be rather meh.
0: I'm afraid so. a two-player for sure. There's so much going on. It does have, like I said, that interesting thing where to get the adventurers on your cart, you have to sell them goods. So that is how you're getting more money. And then bringing them to the towns.
2: (laughs) So this is like a Pied Piper situation? I think so. You pull up in your panel van and you say, hey, 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 Mr.
0: Rogue, I've got some blazing quartz. Why don't you come on in? I've got this dagger here for you. Yeah. It's shiny. (laughs) Come on in. And then, you know, it'll say on them, you know, where they want to, where they want to go. And then there's these contracts that will say this particular town wants these goods. So you have to fill up with enough goods to get adventurers and take them to the town. And then, like I said, at the end of the game, you have so much money and you have so much prestige. And whatever the lowest one is, is your base starting score. Ah, Like I said, I definitely want to go back to it has those magnets that are super cool and which is such a very small part of the game cuz it's just <laughs> one wheel it's in the market you're turning it so not only is the the magnet kind of not necessary it has all these dice there that are kind of unnecessary but it is an interesting sort of cycling market it changes the prices it changes how many things you can buy In all, it's interesting, but there's so many parts to it that I'm not sure it's worth it. I look
2: forward to a glorious future where all board games have magnets and acrylic standees. I played Mogul. Mogul is a game by Michael Schacht and published in 2002. Michael Schacht is the designer of Web of Power slash China slash Han slash Iwari, one of our favorite area-majority games. He also designed Coloretto and Zuloretto and his... Trademark design style is very much one of minimalism, and Mogul is no exception. Mogul actually predates No Thanks by a couple of years, but it has the same bidding element as No Thanks. A card comes up, and you have to spend money round after round to stay in the auction. But unlike No Thanks, where you want to avoid taking cards, in Mogul you just want to be the last person standing because whoever's last at the auction gets the card. However, each card can trigger up to two things. Either you keep the card as a stock, or you let the card trigger a sale of your existing stock. And that is where the key element of tension resides, because in Mogul, it's all about robber barons, and you know that the market is going to crash. At the end of the game, all your stock is worth nothing, so you have to sell your stock but you do not know when you will have those opportunities. And so the values of the stock are fluctuating, but you want to be able to time when to get out. There are incentives to stay in, but there are also incentives to get out as early as possible. All of this with an incredibly minimalistic rule set. And the tension of not knowing when you're going to have that opportunity, the tension of not knowing when you're going to need your money and how to marshal your resources, because whenever you bow out of an auction, you take all of the money that is currently on the card, which can be great. Or you might be in a position where you run out of money, and the person before you also just bowed out, so there's no money left on the table for you when you bow out. It's delicious and terrible all at the same time. I really enjoy Michael Schacht's design philosophy. Colorado is not exactly my favorite, but I do admire how much tension and pain he's able to introduce with an incredibly minimalistic rule set. Mogul is slightly more involved than Colorado, but still has that same tight focus in terms of opportunity costs and knowing when to take your pain and knowing when to walk away. And I love the auction system. I think it works much, much better in Mogul than it does in No Thanks. And the money management is delicious, very much like it is in No Thanks. And I am a huge fan of Mogul. I'm very much looking forward to trying it again. The elements of randomness are very, very subdued. It's more about timing than it is about knowing what's going to come out, as opposed to no thanks. That's one of the things that I really didn't like about no thanks. What cards had been burned out of the deck randomly and unseen at the start of the game could be very, very, very determinative. In Mogul, the end game is random. More on that later in the topic discussion. But nonetheless, you don't feel as though that element is as determinative as the final scoring condition. So, a lovely little stock game, stocks with auctions.
0: And that was Mogul by Michael Schacht. Lastly from me, Jekyll and Hyde, the card game, two-player trick-taking game, designed by Geo Nil and put out by Mandu Games. I enjoy going back to this over and over again. Uh, There's a lot of hidden strategy there, when to play the potions, when to manipulate those three powers that change what the Trump are. Lots there. Enjoying every game of Jekyll and Hyde. Mogul
2: Walker was originally published in two thousand and two. It was republished in twenty fifteen with new art by Marcel André Casasola I mention this because the last game I played was Attica, designed by Marcel André Casasola See how this works? It, it, it segues; one thing leads to the next. It's like it's like poetry; it rhymes. Foreshadowing was
0: fantastic. What is a-
2: Attica? Is a tiling game that is very much about just laying out all your tiles first. That's the victory condition of the game. There's a certain degree of tension there. There's an alternate win condition, though, whereby if you're able to make an unbroken string between two fixed points on the map, you immediately win joining two temples with all of your tiles. The interesting thing about Attica and the hook is that if you are able to build buildings directly adjacent to other certain buildings, they're very direct building prerequisites, you get to build them for free. Otherwise, building can become very expensive. So it's about marshalling timing, knowing when to just except the fact that you're going to have to pay the expensive way because that's just how the timing works out and you need that spot now. Someone else might horn in it later versus being able to get all your ducks in a row and laying them all out. Now, I've only got two major beasts against Attica. I really like Bersal and as a designer. I think that Attribute is one of the best word party games out there. I think that Veratter and Moiterer are brilliant four-player card games that pack a lot of strategy in a very small deck of cards. Uh, Attica is not one of my favorite designers for two reasons. People debate about what the best draw order is for your tiles. And I'm agnostic as to what the best draw order is, but I'm absolutely certain that there are worse orders and better orders. And so the order in which your tiles come out can be very determinative in terms of how well you're going to do in a game of Attica. And as well, when you're playing multiplayer the victory the instant victory condition starts to creak under its own weight you start to get into the infamous kill dr lucky problem it's like well you have to stop them and block them it's like well i'm not gonna do it it's too expensive for me you have to do it and so on and so forth so that that starts feels a little bit less satisfying so it's best with two and it's best if you can accept that luck of the draw may play a rather strong element in the outcome Other than that, though, I have to say Attica is a uh, delightful little tire layer with lots of in-your-face confrontation and trade-offs about timing and resources. I'll happily play, but I don't think it's some of Marcel André-Castasolomechel's best work, and I think it's a shame that he hasn't really been putting out as much lately as he did during the early aughts. And that was Attica. Those are the games we played this week. This episode is brought to you by the spring-cleaning champions Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code games for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and Sleevers Rejoice. It's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants.
0: Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, Mark, maybe you know about more about this than I do. Because I've never heard of a famous Scottish dogfighter. His name is Robotech Macross. <laughs> so maybe you've heard of him.
2: <laughs>
0: this is a Kickstarter that's out. I didn't read much into it because that's not really... Maybe you know more about it? What? What? Wait, what? No, I don't know anything. What? What? You haven't seen the, the new Macross dogfighting giant miniature Kickstarter?
2: No! 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 They didn't tell me!
1: Wh-
0: what? Oh, Mark, oh, Mark. So, more, this to, gig- more to follow gigantic. next week, for sure. <laughs> gigantic. Tons of figures. If you like Macross, like, I know Mark likes Macross, I'm sure he's going to <laughs> love this. All right. <laughs> it is a dogfighting game. It has, uh, templates. It looks like it might be a little bit like X-Wing, where you're sliding mechs around, they're fighting each other. Uh, Different abilities, player cards, tons of art. So this sounds like the long-awaited expansion. I have the base set. It is indeed a
2: template-based game. It has absurd manufacturing issues, not problems. They just had to build the bases in such a bizarre way because they wanted to model the altitude properly. So you actually slide the templates into things that pivot and and turn so you can actually put the template at altitude three and have it connect back to you at altitude one at the end of its movement, if that's what you're actually doing. So uh, I'll definitely be looking into this and next week's episode will be 99% Mark talking about Macross and the other 1% will be Walker trying to get me to stop.
0: I agree with that. Next up, Golden Geek nominations have started, so make sure you barrage them with your board game choices.
2: (laughs) I see what you did there, Walker.
0: (laughs) Shut it. You're not going to give
2: the necessary context? That would be unethical. No, 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 no. I think people should should understand what happened. What happened was Board Game Geek, the editorial staff on Board Game Geek came to us, and they said, Mark, they said, Walker, you're too awesome. You're gonna win every category. From time immemorial, you're gonna win best family game. So very wrong about games is gonna win best war game. You're gonna win most innovative. Please, could 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 you please just do us a solid and just withdraw yourselves from the running because you've already won. And we said it's it's understandable, it's okay. We'll just we'll just take our award in perpetuity and so we can let other people win the award. We will descend the pantheon and relinquish. Our godlike status. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's either that or we're ineligible to win again. Uh, one of the two. I can't remember which, but uh, I think I prefer the first one.
0: Game of Thrones, the board game, the app slash video game, just got an expansion today, Feast for Crows. This was also out for the, the physical game where it adds House Eren. So you have a whole new deck of cards. You have scenario, a four-player scenario. It was very interesting. I know I played it once And the board game adaptation, so I'm looking forward to trying it online. The four-player version
2: of Game of Thrones 1st Edition, the one that they introduced in Storm of Swords, I actually enjoyed. I thought it was was pretty good. So I'm vaguely curious if the four-player version in 2nd Edition is in any way similar.
0: All right, so Mark, back in the before times, Necromunda 1st Edition. Oh, yeah. I and a bunch of friends... Very much heavy into everything Games Workshop. And we had close connections with Games Workshop at that time. And there was talk about adding vehicles to Necromunda. There was some pre-production stuff. There was some, some draft rules. And then instead, Games Workshop did what Games Workshop does. And they put out a game called Gorka Morka instead. But it seems as though this time around they might have learned their lessons. The new expansion for Necromunda is called Ash Wastes. And man, does it look cool. I really wish it was in the before times again when I had time to do such things as miniature gaming and painting.
2: You're bringing me back almost five years ago when we started this podcast. We were very enthusiastic and looking forward to the release of the new Necromunda. And then it got released and we didn't bother pursuing it at all. I
0: know, which was so weird. I think it's just a time thing. We had, back when Necromunda first came out, we had time. And now we just don't. It's true. We, I think it's more that we've burned out on campaign games, honestly.
2: I'm Could still willing be. to play tabletop miniatures games. I'm even sometimes willing to play Games Workshop products. I, I'd love to try Blitz Bowl. I will happily play Warhammer Underworlds in more casual settings.
0: But as far as campaign stuff, and eh, who cares? And lastly in the news, Shucks returns to Vancouver for a three-day convention. This fall, september thirtieth to october second. It's over, Mark. The pandemic? No. Say that. <laughs> Cross that. <sighs> Never mind. <laughs> no comments. Conventions are starting again. This is good news. How's if, that? There we go. Sure. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is end conditions. Why you gotta make it sound so ominous? We're not gonna be talking
2: about opening the seventh
0: seal or anything. It's the end. The end is nigh. So, Mark, I've, 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 I think I've, I, I've done it. I've grouped <laughs> it all into two <laughs> categories. Oh, One no. category which has two. So it's Walker. Turns. You've just
2: become like every other geek on the internet. You've, you're a person with a taxonomy, and you look ready to bludgeon anything so it will fit into your exactly. neat little categories. Okay, all right. Sock it to me.
0: So it's either turns or it's variable, right? Turns or variable. And in variable, you only have two other categories, and that's conditions and <laughs> thresholds. <laughs> These words are
2: so broad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Conditions and variables.
0: No, conditions and thresholds.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm ruining your, your your beautiful little taxonomy here. What if it's a conditional number of turns? Is it then just conditional variable?
0: No, then it's just conditions, Mark.
2: Why isn't it fixed versus variable? F-
0: because turns is fixed. Fixed turns. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. I will absolutely concede that fixed turns or fixed number of rounds is obviously a natural grouping I, yes. I i'm gonna have to see how these other ones shake out i will reserve judgment until we see that and then i'm all
0: over the place with these notes. <laughs> oh then you're all over the place then i'm all over the place I, like I've, I've got a bunch of games listed here under all of these categories i've got some games that have interesting end conditions i have uh why uh i enjoyed end of Games that have a set number of turns, or why? Well, why don't we start with fixed turns then? Fixed turns,
2: because so, uh, I, I mean, obviously, one of the assets is it's it, uh, is the clarity.
0: Everyone can see yeah. it coming. Everyone can plan for it. It gives you a, a time to plan. It gives you time to set your priorities. There's nothing hidden. You know when it's going to happen. It's 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 there.
2: Yeah, by fixed turns, of course. From a fourth dimensional perspective, everything is of a fixed duration, obviously. Here we're talking about fixed turns where the number of turns is publicly broadcast. And so, you know, just the game will last five rounds. The game will last three game turns. You know, whatever whatever it happens to be. I really like uh, fixed rounds and turns because it tends to avoid a lot of sundry problems. Uh, but it, they do introduce their own problems. And that is there are a lot of historical war games or a lot of conflict games that are of a fixed number of turns. And they lead to what's what's called the end-of-the-world problem, right? And this is true especially in our group. We've commented a number of times before. Our group tends to be a little too conservative at the beginning, saving up all the aggression for the end. For example, on Eclipse. Eclipse 2nd Edition is a, is a great example of that. I've seen lots of groups everyone's very friendly, then they start looking at the, you know, the last turn or the penultimate turns, they figure, well, I've got all this fleet, these fleets around, I might as well throw them around for something. And the end of the world problem isn't just psychological, it's also just in terms of the game state, especially for historical war games. The game's going to end, You don't have to worry about defense. You don't have to worry about the long-term. You might as well just throw all your forces at the opponent and see what happens, even if it's a long shot. This is completely ahistorical. It tends to be unthematic. It tends to be strangely gamey, and it's a function of how arbitrary the game end can be. So, all in all, I don't have a problem with fixed turn limits, but it does lead to some perverse incentives, especially in conflict games.
0: I think also it sometimes leads you to know that there's no chance for you to win. Sometimes when you know there's only three or four turns left and you can look at the game state, you can see that there is no possible way that you can get back into the running.
2: Yeah, that's a function of its clarity and certainty, yeah.
0: Yeah. And there's a plethora of games that do this. I'm not going to go over them. I don't think that's all I've got for pros and cons of turn games as opposed to variable games.
2: Okay, so variable games are all games that do not end in a fixed number of turns.
0: Correct.
2: Okay, so let's start with... (laughs) I can't believe I'm going along with this madness. So let's start with conditional variables. What is a conditional variable, or is it a variable conditional?
0: No, it's conditions. Sort of like any adventure games where it says you have to get to a certain point, you have to collect so many things, you have a goal... Uh, where, or you, you earn so many resources or, uh, or there's a set number of victory points and they've all disappeared. These are conditions for the game to end.
2: Okay. You've, you've alighted together, which, which is, which is fine. I'm not arguing that I have a better taxonomy. You've alighted together a number of different ways that a game can end. So one of them is a, is a score threshold, right? Although you used threshold for a different category, so maybe I'm already getting confused. So for example, the game lasts until such time as somebody cracks a certain number of points, and that triggers the end of the game. Either you play, you finish the round, or you finish uh, you finish out that round and play one more round entirely. I'll just note parenthetically under the general category of end conditions that latter condition, the finish the round and then play one more complete round. Has become increasingly popular lately in terms of uh, endgame conditions, especially amongst Euros. And I, for one, am a big fan because it tends to give you a little bit more of that certainty of fixed turn order. So, for example, in uh, Beyond the Sun, Beyond the Sun does that. If you're player one and player two triggers the end of the game, you know at least you're going to get one more turn, as opposed to in lots of other slightly older systems where player one wouldn't know that it was their last turn as they took their last turn. Sometimes that's okay. I'm not saying that that's necessarily problematic, but I do like that kind of innovation. So, you're saying that, so Senji, for example... The game goes until somebody hits 60 honor, that triggers the end of the game, and then you finish out the round, and whoever has the most points wins. You're saying yeah, that's That a would con- be a
0: threshold. Sorry, I lumped, I lumped the 50 point thing into the wrong category. Oh no, Walker. The, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> conditions are, are, sorry, the adventure game stuff, stuff like Ethnos and uh, meeples and monsters and Faeum, you know, where there's a deck of cards, and you've layered in uh, sort of like the end game cards, and once that those conditions are met, where those end game cards come up, Things like that. I
2: see. So anything, any conditional element that isn't a numerical threshold by your estimation. Correct. But isn't Ethnos effectively a threshold in terms of the number of dragons that
0: comes out? Or am I just equating the unequal here? I'm not trying to be difficult. No, 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 no. I can see what you're saying, but it's, it's, it's just, I think it's different because... It's it's so variable where those cards are, where where the thresholds of victory points, where, where like in Food Chain Magnet, where the money runs out, or Crusaders, where the victory points run out, or Hansa Teutonica, where you hit that 20, you can, while the game is being played, you can sort of guesstimate when that is going to happen, where in a game like Ethnos, it is very random, and, and you can sort of, you're playing fast and loose and r- taking risks. With the last few turns, so I okay. thought I thought there was a difference there.
2: What about games where, just out of curiosity, so I'm thinking of a game like Upfront or a lot of other consents like uh, Tank uh, Tank Duel or games of that ilk, where the game lasts two times through the deck or a certain number of times through the deck? Is that conditional or a threshold of two?
0: I'd say that would be a condition. Okay, so is this just a, a number issue? Maybe. Okay. I said I, did, I didn't put I didn't put a lot of thought into this. I just thought that <laughs> there was some. I just thought as I was going through things, I thought there was a definitely difference between condition and threshold, and I thought there was some games that fell into those two categories that were that definitely were
2: different. I agree, with, for what it's worth, I agree with you, and I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I was just trying to try to evaluate what your 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 schema looked like. I think that this is one of those instances where qual- quantity has a quality all its own. So if you wanted to, you could lump it all in. It's like you have a number of things. Once that number of things is reached, the game ends. And of course, that would include number of rounds as well. But to my mind, there is a very, there is in point of fact a difference between, say, a score threshold of 60 or even a score threshold of, of 20 versus, say, a race game where it's first across the finish line. A quest for Eldorado, whether it's something like Cubitos, whether it's a more traditional race game like Rally Man or Always Caesar, I mean, you name it. That is. Well, I think a-
0: there's, there's other ones that are, those are literally race, like race games to the end. But I think there are other games that are the same sort of thing that are sort of war games like Kemet, Game of Thrones, and Twilight Imperium 4, which are all exactly the same. It's a race to 10 points.
2: I, so I agree with you. you. Hit- yeah. It's strange. When I'm playing, because that's just it. I think that sometimes quantity has a quality on its own. If the number is 20 or 60 or what have you, I don't feel like I'm in a race in the same way. When I'm playing Antica or I'm playing Tribune, two of my favorite games, they have low score thresholds. In Antica, you typically win with seven-ish points or so, and in Tribune you typically win like 4 or 5 but I feel the same way I do when I'm sitting on the precipice of getting it, exactly the same as I do when I'm playing just a physical race I'm about to cross a finish line, can anybody cross it first, or can anyone stop me from crossing it on this turn and it's strange how you get that same sensation at the lower numbers but at the higher numbers it becomes a little more diffuse, and yet I don't get that same uh, uh, sensation, and I, and I say this because I love that tension
0: it's true, but I think Root sort of breaks that line of thought because the oh. threshold there is 30, but they've done such a great job of balancing all those races, and every, I'm not saying in every game, but right. in quite a few games that we've played, everyone has been so close that they have did such a great job at making that balance, so everyone's hitting 30 roughly at the same time.
2: That is a good point. I do get that same sensation in a close game of Root. That's an excellent observation. There's also exhaustion. So, an exhaustion you said was a conditional variable, right? Yes. So, the victory, the the pool of victory points has has run out. You don't care how many any individual player has. You just care that they have run out. So, food chain magnate, race for the galaxy, whatever the case may be. You know, there's a big pot of money or score, and once that's gone, that triggers the end of the game in some way. Correct. I like the one
0: in Haunted Tatarica. I like that. I, I will use that in the same sort of thing because it's sort of like a pool of twenty victory points, and once that once that runs out, then
2: <laughs> well, no, but and it that, triggers. No, but they're enti- but it's entirely different. That's the entire point, right? In a game of Hansa Teutonica, in a five player game, you could have four players sitting on nineteen points, and the game will not end. That's because it's a fixed threshold. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't be using True. terms that mirror yours because that will lead to confusion. Because it is a set. I have to use threshold. It is a set threshold, but in a game like Race for the Galaxy, one player could have scored all of the points and exhausted all of the victory point chips, but still the game will end only once the entire pool is gone. So it ends up being a very has ha, having a very different effect
0: based on on balancing. The reason I put on to Titanica is because in so many games that even though that person broke that threshold and ended the game very often he they are not the person that wins the game. It's true. And that's what I like about another reason why I like Contecta.
2: Yeah, it's interesting when <clears throat> the 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 condition to end the game can have very little impact on who actually wins it, right? So in to go back to some of the examples that I that I already mentioned, in Antica if you end the game you win the game. In Tribune, if you cause the game to end, the odds of you winning the game are close to 100%. You're either winning it or it's going to a tiebreaker in which you have an advantage. In the case of things like Race for the Galaxy, if you cause the game to end, you're likely to win, but you're not guaranteed, and it's certainly not a lock. In Hansa Teutonica, who knows? All bets are off. It really, really depends on what people have done and what other people have, have have chosen to do.
0: Then I have a whole list of games here that have multiple ways the game can end.
2: Well, it's funny you mention that. Hansa Teutonica is one of those games it's just one of the endgame conditions never happens.
0: <laughs> that's, <laughs> you are so right. Never happens. I have yet, in the, in the dozens of games played, the game will also end if every city is, is filled. No, 10 cities. If you, fill,
2: if you fill 10 cities.
0: Sorry, 10. It's not all of them, correct.
2: I think once in one map with a full player count, we got to eight. And that's as close as I've ever been.
0: And then there's Yokohama, which has several different ways it can end. Filling the church, filling the customs, lose um, uh, all the contracts being, uh, the deck being depleted. Emptying your board of either houses or, or, or uh, trading houses. Lords of Hellas has five different insta-game ending things. Teotowakin, you can either complete the temple or finish the game rounds out. Terraforming Mars, the same sort of thing. All three conditions must be met for the game to end. Planet unknown that I just talked about. Either you know the one depot being emptied, or someone can't play. Civ games always have tons of different end conditions. You know, either tech victory, military victory, uh, you know, civ victory. Well, multiple except, different victories,
2: except for the OG Civilization. I'm not going to let you generalize about Civilization games and let you get away with just characterizing Sid Meier mold games. In the original Tresham Civilization, there is only one way the game ends, and that's the same way you win the game by crossing the archaeological succession track. So,
0: shout out to OG Francis Tresham. How about if there's hidden ways? What do you think of hidden ways the game can end?
2: Well, sometimes there's hidden scoring. And so, for example, uh, if you look at a game even as simple as Settlers of Catan, it's a fixed point threshold, but a lot of those points could be hidden. You know, someone could be sitting on variable number of points, and you don't know how many they're going to reveal in order to end the game. This, it works the same way in Cthulhu Wars, right? It, there's a public score track and hidden tokens, and you just reveal the tokens when it's time for you to show that you can match the threshold.
0: How about if it's both? Like Archipelago, where the end of the game is hidden and your scoring condition is hidden. Both <laughs> uh, yes. on the same card.
2: Yeah, Archipelago, I think, takes it, like many things in Archipelago, I think it takes it one step too far in terms of the opacity of information presentation.
0: So there's another thing that I'm hoping you have more examples than I do, because I could only think of two. I don't like pressure. I can't deal with pressure. I'm sorry.
2: It's okay. I just don't want to let you down, Dad. I mean, sorry. What what were you saying?
0: These will be games that will uh, score normally at the end. There's like a normal end condition, whatever it may be. But there are triggers that will end the game immediately. Like Dune has this when a certain faction has planets. Seven Wonders Duel has this if someone has a military or a scientific victory. And just that those are the two that I have.
2: Well, there's the example of Archipelago where the game will end prematurely if there's a revolt. One player might True. win as a consequence, but otherwise you're going to Yeah, gonna, if, they, if, go, if you have a traitor, correct? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, yeah, there are, there are thresholds that, that can kick in uh, prematurely, uh, often not to the betterment of the players involved. Uh, the same thing is true of Cthulhu Wars, right? It's conceivably possible in Cthulhu Wars for the game to end and nobody win if nobody has uh, successfully completed their objectives before a certain point threshold is reached. It tends not to happen, though. It's a more prevalent threat in your semi-co-op games like Archipelago, where there's some possibility of the game exerting its dreadful vengeance on you if you haven't managed to succeed at the victory conditions
0: by your own self. So the plus, let's go over the plus. Before I go over some other, like, just interesting games, let's go over the these different variable, What what's the pros and cons of them, right? It gives you this sense of control over the game, where if you're in the driver's seat, you think you're ahead. Or you pushed a certain strategy because it couldn't even be a strategy in the game to drive the end of the game. So it gives you the sense of control. It, it it can help you force people to do moves like substandard moves because you're, you're making them think you're going to end the game soon. All sorts of different things there. It's one of my favorite elements of Glory to Rome, actually. I think it's an underappreciated
2: aspect of Glory to Rome is that it's relatively simple, albeit not necessarily easy, to rush the end game, but you can't really do it all at once. It's something that you'd have to do over a course of several turns, so usually people have a little bit of a warning, but it is absolutely a lever you can pull, and I think that it exerts a very interesting effect on the game state.
0: And unfortunately, on the other hand, if you're not in the driver's seat, it gives you the sense that you have no control whatsoever. Right? You have no idea when the game's going to end. You start taking unnecessary risks. You start making suboptimal moves. You have no idea what's going on. It sometimes could lead to a bad experience. I have two words of advice for you, Walker. Get good, nub? That's three words. I was just going to leave it at get good. Gotcha. All right, some interesting games. I really like how Scythe did it. It sort of broke the... I'm sure you'll give me examples of of other games that did things like Scythe did, but... Scythe and Dead Reckoning both do the same thing where you have uh, an array of objectives that you can fulfill and you have, as soon as someone uh, completes a certain number of them, then the game will end. I th- thought that's very interesting and makes the game fun.
2: I like I like the end game for Scythe as well. It's It has a little bit of that same effect that we identified in Hansa Teutonica. Whoever ends the game isn't necessarily going to be the one who wins it. I mean, generally speaking, especially amongst new players, Whoever gets that 6th star out is probably favored for the victory. But one of the things that I find really interesting is a game where someone is deliberately trying to rush the objectives, whereas one or or a number of other players are deliberately not caring and instead pursuing a whole bunch of other things such that they feel that they'll do well regardless of how the tempo goes. So you have the coexistence both of tempo manipulation and tempo indifference, which is kind of cool.
0: Then there's Great Western Trail, which I don't think there's any game that does it quite like this. They have this whole track along the side. And every time someone delivers cows, it fills up this track. And people can either choose to put employees in there or choose not to. Because when a row fills, it pushes this marker down the track. And when it falls off the bottom of the track, the game will end. So it's so variable when this game is going to end. Because people could put out different tokens like... uh, 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 outlaws or or hindrances to the map, and that will that'll make the game take longer. And I thought that was a very interesting system.
2: Important question, Walker. In the alien abduction and probing re-theme, what does the employee track represent?
0: Uh, the uh, uh, aliens in disguise. Oh, okay. Then there's Red Cathedral. So Red Cathedral is you're building buildings, and as soon as you've built a certain... As soon as someone has all of their flags out on completed buildings, then the game will end. So it really, and not only that, as they build them higher up, it's going to be penalties. So it's sort of like this double-edged sword. So you're watching people build buildings. You're trying to either make sure you're finishing at the same time or scoring when you can. Also has a very interesting scoring system as well, where there's two different kinds of points you can get. But I digress. Red Cathedral, very interesting. Through the desert. Mark, pastel camels are pastel disappearing. You're disappearing. As soon as one pile is gone, the game will end. They're not disappearing. You see exactly these, where they are. They're, they're on the you're board. Watching, you're watching <laughs> these piles deplete, and you're going, I just want to finish this one. And then <laughs> the player takes the last camel, and you're like, why? why are you doing this? Why did you take my last lemon camel?
2: I needed my lemon... Caravan to compete with your grape caravan. Absolutely. That uh, Through the Desert is another good example of a game where tempo rushing can be a serious consideration. You know, someone looks at the state of play. They don't really care about their detergent caravan, but they start placing detergent anyway. That's a good hint and a half that you need to look carefully at what the supply of detergent camels is because they might be rushing for the end of the game. It's one of the reasons why Five Player Through the Desert is so awkward because in Five Player Through the Desert, each player plays with one fewer number of camels. So everyone has one color they don't play into. And sometimes, that leads to strange situations where it turns out that name a color, cherry, cherry is going to determine the end of the game. But if you're the player who doesn't get to place cherry camels, congratulations, you do not get to mess around with the tempo in the same way. It's a bit awkward as a, as a result.
0: Did I just criticize yeah. Through the Desert? I feel so dirty. You did. You should. So let's let's pick it back up. We'll go do Rhino-Kinitzian. Let's go to Tigris and Euphrates, where there's that really interesting cycling the tiles, where the game will end when there's no more tiles. You think you're in the lead. You think You don't think there's very many tiles left in the bag you can just cycle for the sake of cycling to end that game i think that's great
2: absolutely starting conflicts you don't care about causing just destruction wanton destruction on the map because you think it, the it's time for the game to end
0: brilliant yeah making everyone spend tiles just to try to win wars that you don't care about just so they all have to refill out of the bag and end the game yep oh i'm just oh i want to play again anyway And lastly for me, Imperial Steam. You haven't had a chance to play it yet. I haven't. has this very interesting mechanism where you're going to score a lot of points delivering to this last town. But if there's no track built to this last town, then no one is going to score. As long as one person builds it, you're fine. But everyone has to use their track and give them a bunch of points. But it's this... The very end, it's this, it, are they going to build it? Are they going to do it? Are worried? And, and it's very intense in the last turns of real Steam.
2: Does it end up feeling like a weird game of chicken?
0: It does. It really does. Especially if someone, because, you know, there's multiple paths to go down. Someone's streaking down one side and you look and see what goods are available to them. And you realize there's no way they're going to get enough goods to finish that track and and sometimes there is a race because you know it's going to happen one way or the other. And you either, A, want to get there first so the other person just doesn't bother and and, and uses their resources somewhere else. And then everyone has to come through your track and, and give you all of the benefits. But I am looking forward to giving it a few more tries because it did get some good buzz.
2: Sounds promising. You know, Walker, it's been a whole, I don't know, five minutes since I've editorialized without prompting. So I think it's time for me to do it again, because there is one endgame condition that we haven't yet discussed, and it is an underappreciated, underused, underdiscussed end condition, and I think more people need to take it seriously. Can I guess? Go ahead. Is it the tower collapse? <laughs> <laughs> no, although that is a good one. it uh, <laughs> That is one of the virtues of many a dexterity game, some sort of catastrophic physical failure. Rhino Hero Super Battle, your other related stacking games, Minara, everything collapses to pieces and that's the end of the game. You know, a nice little way to end with a bang, not a whimper. Absolutely. No, this is any game can end by mutual consent of the players. I'm not just being cute here. I'm being sincere because I think concessions need to be more mainstreamed in terms of an acceptable way to end the game. In the historical wargame community, my perception is that concessions are more favorably looked on than in other areas of board gaming. If it's the case, as you said, that it's a fixed length and it's clear that one player is running away with it, and or it's clear that someone's not feeling it at the table for whatever reason... We're the ones in charge of the game. The game is not in charge of us. And it's. I realize that I'm not saying that people should run around and start suggesting concessions here, there, and everywhere. I'm saying that I wish we lived in a culture where it was more acceptable to bring it up, where it was more acceptable to suggest it, and more acceptable to consider it. I recognize that we're not in that culture, but I think that that's
0: unfortunate. Well, it's prevalent in the original game, chess, right? You just tip your king over and you forfeit when you realize that there is no way to win.
2: And that's one of the reasons why Air, Land, and Sea by John Perry, as well as Khmer, are so clever, because they've internalized that. You can concede around when things aren't going well. That's a little bit different. That's sort of... Uh, mid-game scoring condition as opposed to anything else. But there are circumstances where I've looked across uh, the, the the table at my opponent and they're either running away with it or I'm running away with it and I can tell they're not feeling it for whatever reason. And I'm like, but if I just suggest we stop that, that I mean, it, it, it feels like a failure. But to my mind, it's not. It's a triumph of the social contract over the game rather than the other way around if people are willing to walk away from a game they're not feeling for whatever reason.
0: True, but it is a risk, too, because you might be reading their table wrong, and they might be enjoying it, and the moment that you suggest it, it off-puts the whole game, so it is definitely a risky consideration.
2: That is true. That is why I would never suggest, even in this hypothetical ideal world that I'm positing, to say, how about I just concede? Instead, question first might be, are you enjoying this? And <laughs> and then proceeding from there. Agreed. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find our most excellent website, sowronggames.com, and all our contact information is at sowronggames.com slash contact. We are available on a variety of different social media or social meds, as the kids do not say these days. We will read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. See you again next week, and thanks again for joining us. Peace! <laughs>